Welcome to Radio Finance, the podcast that helps you understand the transformative developments taking place in the world today. Very pleased to be able to speak with uh, Bill Richard, uh, the Managing Director, Co-Founder of Garage uh, Technology Ventures. Our conversation is going to be a little complex. Uh, we're going to talk about valuations, the impact of, uh, of the pandemic on venture capital generally. Uh, and also, I want to test your ideas on a couple of things, um, where technology is evolving and how you take positions in things that are disruptive. Maybe you can start by giving us a snapshot of your background. I came to Silicon Valley as a student. Uh, and it was while I was a uh, grad student at Stanford that I wound up starting a software company. I had no intention when I came to Stanford of starting a company, of being an entrepreneur. I thought I was going to go back to Wall Street or Washington and do high finance or public policy. I was doing a project for a venture capital firm while I was a student a long time ago when the PC had just emerged as an alternative platform for computing. I had grown up, frankly, uh, learning computing on, uh, on mini computers. So that was kind of my era, learning how to program and learning computing in the mini computer era, which is to say during the 70s and early 80s. So the PC comes out and I was complaining to this VC about the fact that there was no good software for the PC. You couldn't do any serious kinds of uh, analytics. All you had was a spreadsheet. And I, I said, somebody's got to figure out how to develop serious business applications for the PC. And the VC said to me, well, Bill, why don't you do that? And I thought, well, okay, maybe I guess in my spare time, I'll go solve this problem. And then I can go graduate and go back to the East Coast. One thing led to another and uh, wound up starting up a company, which was a software company. We were actually the first app development company for the PC. Our business model was to develop a matrix of applications for the PC that would be appropriate for the enterprise. It was a blue ocean and the company just took off. We crashed and burned and the whole thing blew up. And that was my initiation into, um, into entrepreneurship, venture capital right. and Silicon Valley. And In those days, when you see app development for the PC, what apps were you working on? As you say, the whole world opened up to you at that point. Originally, the whole idea was financial applications. Before business school, I had done a stint at McKinsey Company as a research analyst. I wound up being their analyst for their mergers and acquisitions program in the Los Angeles office of McKinsey, which was the practice leader for mergers and acquisitions. I wrote a bunch of programs specifically to do analytics on mergers and acquisitions. I did this on mini computers. Time passes and now we have the PC. The big idea was to develop financial applications for the PC. The great thing about entrepreneurship is you never actually wind up doing what you plan to do, right? At the same time, you, you sort of gravitate to something that is you. That's the whole idea of being an entrepreneur. of accidents, but we wound up writing the first Rolodex software. We were at a trade show and these guys show up and say, hey, I, we were thinking maybe people would be interested in managing their contacts on a personal computer. Could you guys help us write this software? And we said, yeah. <laughs> so... We wrote the first Rolodex software. Charles Schwab came along and said, hey, do you think people would be interested in managing their money on a personal computer? And we said, yeah, we can do that. So we wrote the first software for Charles Schwab um, called Money Manager. 
And then Dow Jones came along and said, hey, do you think people would be interested in doing their bookkeeping on a computer? We said, yeah, we can do that. Does that universe still exist in Silicon Valley? Is there a new frontier where things like AI or blockchain, we've got this ability and someone comes along and says, can you put this on blockchain? Can you put, yeah. um, can, can you build, and then a whole range of applications are born because of that. Like, right, well, every generation of, of compute technology has spawned a new generation of app development. Fast forward, when the internet came along in the 90s, Everybody said, ooh, we've got to have something on the internet. Initially, it was brochureware on the internet, but a whole industry sprouted around enabling companies to get on the internet. The companies couldn't do it themselves. Third parties had to do it. Since we're on this topic, where is technology today? Given that the, the entire 1990s applications had evolved into enterprise applications, about 2008, after the iPhone and all the mobile devices came about, yeah. uh, it all became uh, frontline technology, the technology that sits on, on a mobile device. I ask this because in banking, for example, right yeah. up to the mid-2000s, uh, there was this whole thing about core banking systems. They were monoliths built. The application was built around the way in which the enterprise was structured. Today, the application yeah. has to sit outside the enterprise. So it's... It, it, it needs to be developed quickly, deftly. It has to sit on the device and the institution buys from that. Where's the Western world? I say Western world because yeah. mm -hmm. uh, the Chinese world seems to have uh, really gone into the mobile universe very easily, very quickly, yeah. uh, very intuitively. And then there's this whole enterprise culture. Where is that? If you take companies oh. like Oracle, relational database, which is really enterprise, and then, yeah. and then now they say cloud and community. Well, Give us a sense of how right. do you think that that, that evolution has evolved? Uh, where yeah. is it right now? I don't know what the right metaphor is. It's sort of like a wave, which is to say that the base of the wave that comes up more slowly than the crest of the wave. The crest of the wave is what we all see. In the 90s, we got the evolution of e-commerce and eventually this evolution of financial applications on the internet PayPal is sort of the early version of that. Since then, lots of other financial applications, almost all of which have been sort of the front edge of the wave. The underlying infrastructure of finance banking evolves much more slowly. In the innovation world, it's relatively easy to develop applications and software that sits at the front edge of the wave in terms of the interface between the infrastructure of the financial services industry and the consumer, whether the consumer is an individual true consumer or a small business or even a larger business, that interface is much more dynamic in terms of what technologies can be implemented there. Back at the infrastructure, that has moved slowly. So the, the underlying plumbing of the financial services industry, certainly in the West, is very old. I also ask this because in finance, manufacturing, and so on, there was a time when the SAPs pulled um, the rule away. Right. You had the core banking players and so on, and, and institutions um, dedicated large resources, large amounts of resources on that. Um, yeah. Now, it's possible to start a digital bank with just five people. Right. Um, entirely on the on the on the cloud and the rules have changed the rules are the rules are that uh, you create a community of developers 
community of um, uh, users, um, in our community of APIs uh, around a basic, um, you know, application. Right. And that application, right. um, in the old days, you would start by saying, okay, where's the general ledger? You know, where's the basic information on the, on the, on the customer sitting? Uh, okay. and, then, and then you build everything else internally uh, as a stack, one on top of the other. And now you don't stack it. it it's, uh, you know, it comes and it goes. It's a universe uh, and so on. And it just takes five oh. people, five people to start a digital bank today. But every digital yeah. banking initiative of a, of a traditional bank yeah. involves armies of people who are trying to do two things. They're trying to protect what they have built as, a, uh, as an enterprise architecture. Yeah. Uh, and they're trying to get into the new universe of the, you know, the cloud, the, 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 the ecosystem kind of a thing. So yeah. um, do you yeah. see that transition? Do you see that transition taking place? Do you, uh, you know, uh, um, how, how many, <laughs> while you're doing that, can you give us a sense yeah. of, you know, how many companies you're invested in, what's the size of your fund, you know, that, that sort of thing, some background as well. Through the end of the last century, I was an entrepreneur doing, I wound up doing five venture-backed startup companies. Um, and, uh, and then uh, after my last company went public, I got together with Guy Kawasaki and a few other people and we started Garage to be a different kind of venture capital firm. And we had you know, all sorts of radical visions as to how we were going to change the venture capital world. Um, and so our first investment was in uh, January of 1999. Um, and then we filed to go public uh, in February of the year 2000. I mean, it was an insane, insane period of time. So, um, so fast forward, you know, we've had five funds in Garage. We've invested in, you know, something over 150 companies over the years. We have uh, several brand name success stories are, you know, sort of, our most famous success story, because it's a consumer brand, is Pandora. We were the first investors in Pandora. We had several even bigger successes on the enterprise side. I connected with a global venture firm originally out of Japan that set up its global headquarters in Silicon Valley called Pegasus Tech Ventures. Pegasus invests all over the planet. They have a, a big office in Southeast Asia. They've invested in over 40 companies in Southeast Asia. Um, I sit on the board of a company in Vietnam uh, for, for Pegasus. Um, and they invest in Japan and Korea and um, elsewhere in the world, as well as primarily, primarily in the U.S. Um, and so I have had the wonderful opportunity to invest across the entire spectrum. Right. From, you know, from very raw startup seed stage, two guys in a garage, through uh, pre-IPO companies. Earlier this year, we invested in SpaceX. So, you know, a pretty broad gamut. Um, have done life sciences, have done material science, have done robotics and AI, have done quantum computing, um, have done fintech and ag tech. When you invest in such a wide range of technologies, yes. um, what sort of a, um, you know, a, a kind of a, a, a game plan that you see evolving and what are the elements that you, you, you pay attention to that you pick up from yeah. uh, in terms of where the technology is, in terms of 
where it should be today. It was easier days in the 1990s where uh, all the work in technology was, you know, was, um, had the mind, mindset of how do we map this into an institution, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, and, and today it's just not that. But, well, but then you have the legacy institutions. Broadly, you know, broadly speaking, broadly. The, biggest, the biggest trend in, in the venture ecosystem has been that every single corner of our world has now opened up to technological innovation, potentially disruption, to venture capital investment, to entrepreneurial involvement. And, you know, my point earlier was sort of back in the old days, right? Back in the, in the 80s and 90s, the tech industry and the venture industry were pretty narrowly focused on, you know, IT, broadly defined, information technology, broadly defined, communications technology, to some extent, including networking and, and all of that. You know, the internet came along and it opened up sort of these new classes of business model. And so e-commerce was not technological investment, right? E-commerce was not investing in technology. E-commerce was investing in business models. It was investing in, you know, a, a, a way of doing business on top of an established technology. And, and sort of with that transition, then you fast forward the mobile era you had, you know, the evolution of Web 2.0, which was primarily a laptop experience inter- intersecting with social, and then the smartphone coming out, and then, you know, that whole evolution of moving your your internet access to the smartphone, which was which made a huge amount of sense globally. It was it was less dramatic in the United States and Europe than it was in the rest of the world because the entire sort of infrastructure of the internet had evolved on the laptop. And so, right, everybody in the U.S. and Europe had a laptop and a credit card. And so, you know, that, that meant that the emerging economies, you know, primarily China, but also the rest of the world, um, had a chance to leapfrog technology that and and be sort of unshackled by the infrastructure that we had grown up with in the more traditional laptop based internet e-commerce fintech models um, and so you in a lot of ways you saw much more innovation in uh outside of the us and europe in in terms of the impact on daily life of of digital technology as compared to, you know, as compared to the U.S. It's like way more dramatic. I mean, it was a 10x drama, obviously, in China and India and Southeast Asia and the rest of the world. Do you think that PayPal today is innovation or still frontier technology? And the yeah. reason I ask mm-hmm. is when I look at PayPal, yes. um, you know, uh, by, by securing payment on the website, uh, yeah. which was a big, you know, breakthrough at that point. But eventually, the back end now is so credit card centric that it feeds right back into the, you know, the legacy credit card universe. Right. It's just a digital right. version of that. And it's right. so comfortable for PayPal right. that, that um, you know, if you compare them to, say, Alipay, they just won't, um, 
uh, evolve. Um, you know, yeah. so are there are there technologies that you invested in or you you were part of in the early two <laughs> thousands that are today legacy? It's sort of the other way around. We um, uh, one of my favorite initial pitches. It was you know it was in the year two thousand, and I was at a I was at a uh, conference in Chicago. And this group of guys came up to me and said, hey, Bill, we are going to disrupt a $30 trillion industry. The name of the company was Rocket Check. In the year 2000, um, you know, technically PayPal had just been born, but the drama was the internet. A huge percentage of financial transactions in the United States were being done by physical checks. It was extremely rare that, that, I mean, that there was direct deposit kind of payment, you know, back then. And, you know, and so this, these guys, their big idea was, it's the 21st century. We're going to transform payments and we're going to make all payments digital. Fast forward, it's still a challenge to this day, is that the infrastructure for payments is owned by the legacy players. Right, your point about, you know, sort of the um, uh, sort of the new generation of banks. You can, you know, five guys can start up a new bank. Um, yes and no, right? I mean, what you have to do if you want to start a new financial play is you got to go find this legacy player who will give you a home that you know a base you can operate out of that is compliant with all of the local and international regulatory regimes. And then you sit on top of them as a, you know, maybe exciting um, sort of novel interface, but you haven't really made a dent in terms of the okay. underlying infrastructure. So given that there's so much legacy and there's so much regulation today right. uh, in right. a number of industries, not just finance, um, yeah. you know, um, venture capitalists like yourselves Mm-hmm. To what extent are you, um, do you have the, the, the dare in you still to break rules, to, um, you know, to, to, to move the line a little bit, you know, to, um, to well, test regulators, um, you know, um, and, and push things um, even a little bit. I mean, you know, yeah. there, there was a time when the yeah. movers of the world will go in and set up, a, um, you know, an informal net- taxi network without permission and then right. work out. But yeah. today, I get the yeah. sense that lots of uh, uh, VCs um, yeah. almost factor in the legacy regulatory uh, thinking into them. Yeah. Uh, and then the, the final product that you look at is not yeah. um, innovative at all. You know, it's, uh, it's incremental, if anything. Right. Our job is to invest other people's money into companies that will generate a 10x return. And, and so, as you know, I love, love it when I get the opportunity, for example, to invest in quantum computing. Um, you know, I know it's going to take a long time for that to play out. But I also, you know, I also believe that we're at an inflection point in some of these technologies that within the span of venture investing, we're going to get a significant increase in the valuation of these companies within the next four, five, six years. Our job is not to change the universe. Our job is to find entrepreneurs who can change the universe. And if an entrepreneur comes to us 
and says, I have this, this disruptive technology that if only the regulations were different, we could you know, transform this sector of the economy. And you know, as an investor, we've made a couple of investments on the presumption that policy was gonna move in our direction. And almost always, that's a dangerous assumption, that policy will change, will move in your direction. It's appropriate for investors to take into consideration regulatory requirements. Now, we can inveigh against regulation, government bureaucracy and all of that sort of thing, but, you know, to put our, our, our limited partners' money at risk because we think, you know, we think that the politicians haven't done their job, you know, that just doesn't make sense. I love working with entrepreneurs that, that are thinking outside the box, that are not, you know, sort of uh, constrained by the current, the current legacy infrastructure. I love looking at those opportunities. We've done that several times to great effect, particularly in the material science space. But when you're, in, when you're talking about um, regulatory environments, you know, that's, that's tough. 10 years ago, as the smartphone came out, and finally e-wallets came out um, in Europe and Japan um, around the same time as PayPal came out in, in the United States, um, the United States just never got excited about e-wallets until smartphones came along. Then there was a little bit more enthusiasm, you know, about the e-wallet model. It's still not that big a deal in the United States, but the you know the idea of trying to go against the grain um, in terms of one regulation and then two uh, sort of user enthusiasm. Doesn't make, you know, doesn't make sense for an investor. In a lot of um, industries, uh, there seemed to be a slowing down of disruption and more mm. of, um, you know, of an incremental thing. Uh, in fact, just this week, uh, Ali, uh, Alibaba's uh, N Financial, uh, mm. the, they were forced by the regulator to drop the word financial and to be called N technology. China is also um, consolidifying now. So it's, it's, uh, it's becoming more conservative. Uh, that era of the, you know, Alipay and so on is now over. It's officially yeah. over, you know, and uh, it's going back to the traditional players and, and so on. Yeah. So uh, I'm just wondering to know the VC universe, yeah. uh, whether you're on the lookout for things that are disruptional, you know, disruptive. Um, yeah. You know, that, yeah. that you would have at least two or three companies in your portfolio that yeah. are. Are potentially most disruptive investment well we have a few um uh you know one is spacex uh and you know it's it's astonishing all of the things that they're planning to do and you know, sort of now that i'm an investor in them as and when they actually do that you know it's going to be amazing right an important aspect um uh of spacex which is i mean um you know, so much of what they are doing, uh, the rules are relatively open and there are very few legacy players, right? So, you know, it's, 
is they're aligned with their partners. They are very much aligned with NASA, right? For example, there aren't really legacy players out there unless you consider, you know, sort of Boeing, you know, kind of a legacy player that they're competing with. But it's, it, you know, very little that you have to, you know, overcome there. Another example is a company um, less well-known we've invested in called Vicarious. So Vicarious is a AI robotics company that, um, you know, I think um, lots and lots of famous Silicon Valley people have invested in Vicarious um, around the idea of, of leapfrogging the, um, the path of progress of smart robots. So Vicarious is a team spun out of Stanford that believes that traditional deep neural networks are, are, are a dead end. They are, you know, highly limited in what they're going to be able to do. And so AI requires an entirely new framework for computing decision-making around uh, robots. Um, and so it's very transformational in terms of the architecture and the approach that they're taking. Their business model is pretty mundane. Um, their business model is robot as a service. And so you don't have to buy and install and configure and program and develop, um, you know, $150,000 just to get a robot working on your production line. The big idea is $2,000 a month and here's a robot and it can go, you know, in 30 minutes, it can figure out what it's supposed to do. And it will just do it all day, all night, tirelessly, never making a mistake, right? Um, Actually, you just pointed out something very interesting, which is yes. the more technology we see, uh, the more we see in terms of AI um, mm -hmm. and, and robotics and so on, mm -hmm. um, there's a kind of a price destruction taking place. Uh, you know, it's, it's actually to, to commoditize, um, you know, business models and, and uh, make it, you know, make it more available to more people. So AI doesn't mean more revenue. AI means democratization. It's, it means, um, you know, price destruction. When you look for, uh, you know, sustainable business models that you yes. can, you can cash out on. In the networking days, it was, uh, you know, uh, critical mass, uh, number of customers, um, you know, number of, um, uh, you know, I views and yeses and stuff like that. Um, well, what do you, what do you look for now? I mean, is yeah. it the technology? Is it the ability to uh, amass large user base? Um, so venture capital has a, you know, very clear set of criteria, <laughs> which is that you invest in companies that can grow very rapidly, achieve scale, and have disproportionately attractive economics. It doesn't matter, I mean, it doesn't matter if you're selling it for 99 cents a pop or for $999,000 know, $999, a pop. Um, you want to price it to optimize that end objective which is to deliver disproportionate rents in an economic sense, right? Um, right? So what's the price point? What's the price point that's gonna ultimately generate the greatest value as a company? That's um, great. 
And so, you know, the great thing about software, I mean, and this is the reason that digital has transformed our economy, which is if you can develop an application or a solution that delivers value, the marginal cost of delivering that application to more people is almost zero, right? You have a customer acquisition cost, but, but unlike, you know, selling the next car, selling the next house or selling the next boat or whatever it is, selling the next subscriber is a wildly different economic than, you know, sort of in the physical world. It's a win-win in, ter in economic terms that we can, deliver we can deliver substantial incremental value for virtually no incremental cost. Right. That is, you know, good for everyone. Um, there yeah. is the universe that was evolving uh, just before the pandemic hit. Um, mm -hmm. And in fact, when I look at the numbers, uh, we see uh, dry powder has been, you know, growing very well, uh, but um, invested, um, oh. uh, you know, investments uh, was actually sort of uh, tapering off a little bit. It was, it was softening um, in 2019. Mm -hmm. uh, you have that. Uh, and then, uh, curiously, a few of the, uh, you know, startups uh, were being valued very well. Yeah. Uh, and I actually thought that it was companies like SoftBank that were, that were providing the benchmark valuation where everybody else was trying to reach that. And then, and then when mm -hmm. SoftBank sort of got off the scene, um, right. you know, right. everyone's lost somewhat. Now you have, as part of the pandemic problem, uh, the U.S. government putting in a lot of uh, liquidity into the marketplace. Yeah. And this liquidity right. might be different from the 2008 liquidity. Um, and, mm -hmm. and in fact, right now, as we speak, uh, the, uh, the stock market is doing very well in the U.S. And, and it actually is, mm -hmm. seems to be rewarding uh, the digital companies. Talk to us a little yeah. bit about yeah. um, where valuations were in 2019, where they are as a result of the pandemic. Um, yeah. Um, and uh, who are the players like, you know, the stock market, um, the series players, um, yeah. you know, and, and the VCs and, and so on. Let me first tell you that the, the aggregate numbers that you see on venture capital investing are, are, are wildly misleading. So, I mean, they tell you very, very little because the aggregate numbers that you're looking at are overwhelmingly the numbers associated with late stage investments in unicorns. And, and so if you burrow down inside, you can see you know, some other data on what's going on at the startup level, at the you know, seed and early stage level. And unfortunately, for a whole bunch of reasons, the data collection on what's going on at the venture eco ecosystem is, it's very, um, it's not very good data. There are just so many accelerators and incubators and so many angels and angel groups and so many, you know, corporate players now and so many new small funds that it's really hard for, the, for, for you to get a real sense of what's going on from the data. So when, when I look at what's going on in the venture ecosystem, I make this very clear differentiation between what's going on at the top, sort of at the unicorn level, where the really big players, the late stage funds, which make up, you know, more than half of all the venture capital is dedicated to late stage. And that's, you know, and that's limited to several hundred companies globally, basically. Um, 
And, you know, some of those are interesting, exciting companies and, and they're highly relevant, but it doesn't give you a great sense of the underlying innovation ecosystem. So at the top of, the, of, this, of this ecosystem pyramid, yes, valuations, uh, you know, got crazy high. Um, and they're still amazingly high. The problem for us <laughs> as, as sort of traditional venture capital investors, the problem for us is venture capital as a class is such a tiny asset class that as soon as the big guys decide, oh, let's allocate more money to venture capital, it swamps the class because it's such a tiny class. This is unfair, but, you know, sort of the true, you know, the true startup ecosystem capital domain is, you know, less than $50 billion a year. Um, But you put in all of these new players with all of their big checks and, you know, it swells it to, you know, something over $200 billion um, globally, uh, you know, with all the late stage money, you know, going in. So that, you know, it's just a very distorted perspective on, on what's really going on. So having said that, because there's been so much money coming in, uh, it has been for the last six, seven, eight years, it has been an entrepreneur's market. You know, there's been so much new money coming in that entrepreneurs, once they cross a threshold of fundability in terms of, you know, having validated that they've got a technology that delivers compelling value. Um, then, you know, it's been relatively easy for them to get inflated prices. So there's that whole class of players out there. Um, and, you know, it's, it's also partly our fault. On the VC side, as soon as we see a sector taking off, then, you know, there is, right, there's a herd mentality that you want to say, why haven't you already invested in a food delivery startup? You know, why haven't you already invested in a personal mobility startup? Why haven't you already invested in an autonomous vehicle startup? You know, why haven't you already invested in a robo-wealth advisor startup, right? So, pick a sector and there is this unfortunate tendency um, by the community to want to have a, a, you know, a toe in all of these emerging sectors as they, as they come out. That's created what is now affectionately known as the Gartner hype curve. Technology has never evolved and progressed as fast as we think it has. I mean, we have this, this myth in our brains, you know, that we grew, we grew up with, which is that the pace of technology continues to accelerate. Well, no, it doesn't, it doesn't actually move that fast, you know. So product, product release cycles have accelerated. Competition has accelerated. Globalization has accelerated. You know, revenues globally have accelerated but the pace of technology does not move as fast as investors and entrepreneurs think it does. Yeah. Take a blockchain, for example. Yeah. Right. So right. Just, just listening to what you just said, uh, every right. VC uh, you know, will, will pay homage to, to blockchain. 
Um, and then as you see all the different blockchain initiatives yeah. evolving, what I see at yeah. least is, is number one, a lot of it is just software. Um, you know, it's actually yeah. a shared well. ledger. The second is every yeah. blockchain initiative uh, is an on us initiative, meaning that they all, each one of them want to create their own universe. So without kind of a connectivity, you know, it, it's going to be years before you start seeing um, you know, the real benefit of blockchain, um, you know, and then of course it's, it's, uh, it's hampered by the fact that, you know, the, the technology itself is not mature to be fast, to be, uh, you know, usable and so on. Right. Um, so do you look at blockchain companies uh, and when you do, what are you looking for? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so, uh, okay. Remember when was, when did the world learn about blockchain technology? It was 12 years ago. It has evolved. It's gone through these, these crazy cycles because of its attachment to crypto. Um, and so, you know, because of its attachment to crypto, it's, it's had a somewhat different ride through the, our technological world. They, yeah. they've, de de they're, they've decoupled it now, you know, it's yeah, now, yeah. Uh, again, coming right. back to the question of enterprise, the enterprise has, uh, has embraced it, owned it, redefined it, uh, you know, and, and then there's a thousand different initiatives out there. It's become yeah. a regular software industry. This is your point, is that it is just another app. I mean, and so if I decide to implement some sort of solution on blockchain infrastructure as opposed to Oracle infrastructure or as opposed to a, you know, a um, flat file infrastructure or a, you know, non-SQL infrastructure, whatever. It doesn't matter. I mean, I still have the issue of how do I open that? How do I open that database to third parties? You know, no matter what, you have this issue of how you open it up. And so blockchain has a different way of providing access than a traditional database does, um, which is sort of interesting and has some particular benefits in certain applications. We've you know, made a couple of blockchain investments. There is no magic in blockchain. And that's, you know, and unfortunately, far too many entrepreneurs are religious about blockchain. <laughs> And I, you know, and that's always, that's always scary to investors. I mean, that whenever, whenever an entrepreneur comes along and says that blockchain is going to displace, you know, all infrastructure and Oracle is dead, right? I mean, I just, I just stay away from those entrepreneurs who, you know, for years and years and years have said the legacy banks, the legacy banks are doomed. They are dinosaurs. They will die. And, you know, it's not going to happen. Coming back to uh, valuations and, and, you know, where do you find um, the anchor uh, right. pricing mechanisms, right? right. And right. so, again, I want to add in the fact that it's a low interest rate environment right now. Right. Lots of quantitative easing or equivalent out in the marketplace. Right. Exactly. Huge right. liquidity. Do you think about all yeah. these things um, in terms of, you know, the institutions and the exit mechanisms that are available now? Uh, yeah. To what extent is that uh, M&A for you? Um, you know, um, what, what's unique about how Garage does the, its, um, you know, its exits? Yeah. The point you're making about the global liquidity 
is you know related to the point I was making before about how small the venture capital asset class is, and and yeah. how a little bit of incremental yeah. capital yeah. swamps the rest of us, right? Um, and that's you know the world the world chases returns, right? We know that, and we've seen this after cycle after cycle. And right now, it's really hard to see what asset class is going to be giving you good returns in the future. So equities seem pretty fair, you know, pretty highly priced right now, um, you know, in spite of the fact that the stock market is doing, you know, shockingly well. I mean, um, there's a, you know, there's a huge pool of cash that is, that is sitting on the sidelines. How in the world can Boeing be doing as well as they are? I mean, so, you know, it's just, there's no place to put your money right now. How has COVID, um, you know, played oh, out for you? And how's that changed your, your business when you spend yeah. time on? Yeah. You know, again, because we're venture capitalists, we're investing for the long term anyway. And, you know, the irony is to some extent that because of COVID, we've been flooded with entrepreneurs who say, I've got the perfect answer for COVID, right? Whether it has to do with, you know, video conferencing or food delivery or therapeutics or, you know, personal protective equipment. I mean, we are just all these entrepreneurs who've decided, you know, we're going to pivot and address the COVID crisis, but that's not the type of thing we invest in, right? So it hasn't fundamentally changed our, our investment thesis there are things on our radar in the hospitality, mo you know, personal mobility space. Um, we're not abandoning anything, um, but we are trying to understand where the world is moving and how this, how this larger uh, crisis is going to play out. So almost certainly we're going to go into this this world that is going to be very different than it was before COVID in terms of economic growth or lack thereof. You know, we are certainly going to go into a prolonged, you know, economic downturn of some sort. Um, you know, we may hit, um, you know, before the end of the year, it's going to take a long time to crawl out from wherever that bottom is and who knows where that bottom is. Right. Yeah. So, so um, in the companies that you already invested in, uh, yeah. what sort of trouble are they yeah. in? Like, um, yeah. you know, so, cash flow, um, you know, uh, operational, um, you know, delays. This crisis is very different than the meltdown in 2008, 2009. So in 2008, 2009, um, everybody got whacked. And, you know, we weren't sure if the financial system was going to survive. And we would literally have board meetings worried about where our cash was banked. Right now, on the other hand, the impact of this crisis on, on, on early stage companies is you know, highly variable depending upon where you are in the, you know, in the market. We've been very fortunate that, uh, that, that um, boy, none of our companies uh, totally whacked by this thing, partly because they had raised money last year and they then had the ability to hunker down. So depending upon your timing, 
um, if you had enough cash in the bank when this thing started and you got whacked, then you then you can hunker down. But we're hoping, you know, what we're telling everybody is, you know, if there's any way you can make it to next summer, the summer of 2021, you know, design for that, design for that. Do not assume this thing's going to be over this year. So what we're seeing is, you know, there's some slowing down, but we're not seeing, we're not seeing wholesale cancellations of, you know, software subscriptions or of licenses. Unlike when the bubble burst and unlike, you know, 2008, 2009, where we had to just forget about, forget about any new investments and focus on the portfolio. Back during the global financial crisis, the venture capital industry shut down in terms of new investing. Right. Just focused, just focused on the portfolio. Um, that's not happening. And in fact, what I'm seeing is, is this kind of an awakening where people are thinking, huh, this could open up some interesting new angles in things like logistics and supply chain, or, you know, obviously healthcare is an increased focus going forward. And frankly, um, you know, it's pretty clear that pretty much all the governments of the world are going to appreciate that entrepreneurship, innovation, and investing in uh, technology, you know, new technologies is the smart thing to do. All the data supports having public policy um, put a certain amount of resource into supporting entrepreneurship, innovation, you know, disruptive technologies. Um, you know, there's tremendous research that supports on that. the on the thing side. I mean, raising funds. Uh, how's that going? You know, has it become easier because of the interest rates and 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 uh, are there people coming in with bags of money? I just had a a, a long conversation earlier this evening with a good friend of mine who is at a different VC who just closed who just closed their um, their new fund. Um, you know, and with a lot of the negotiation and and um, uh, attraction happening during, you know, during the last three months while we were in this crazy period, right? There's a ton of liquidity in the world. There's just a lot of money out there trying to figure out where do we go. So then, so, you know, as far as we're concerned, we haven't seen that the LP window, I think we're seeing caution. I think there is going to be a flight to quality or a movement to quality. I think for some of the newer funds, it's going to be harder. Um, it is going to be harder for startup companies to attract capital. I think the angels are going to be more cautious. So I think, I think there's no question this is going to, this is going to slow things down, but it's nothing like, it's nothing like the uh, global financial crisis of you know, 12 years ago. Mm. I think you've described it well, because uh, you, what you're saying is that there is caution, but there's lots of liquidity. Um, if, you ha- if you have experience, the funds are going to be gravitating to you. Uh, but then that puts pressure on you because uh, what sort of yields would your investors be looking at? Yeah. Well, what's yeah. the conversation on that? Like, like yeah. um, you know, where are the investors coming from and um, what are they looking for? Like, are they just parking their funds with you or what? Well, it depends on who the investor is. So, so, with, um, so with Pegasus, most of our investors, 
investors are corporate investors. And so their focus is not um, on internal rate of return. Their focus is on, on making sure that they get a window into emerging technologies that are relevant to their business over the long term. Uh, so that, from that point of view, the, the valuation issue is not a significant driving force. The driving force is we want to make sure we don't get blindsided by a technology mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. going to be relevant to us. And conversely, we want to be early adopters of the next wave of technology that's going to affect our sector. So they're leaning in, um, if anything, in our world. Is it's about the balance sheet. It's not about the PNL. The family offices, they're all more cautious. Um, right. And uh, I mean, I think in March, when in March when the market just fell off a cliff, um, for you know the family offices were pretty much in chaos. But um, I, I, you know, I think the family offices now are much more comfortable uh, this week than they were the last week in March. Um, and so they're trying, you know, they, they now can breathe because uh, <laughs> they're not looking at their portfolios going from down 25% to down 50%. They're now looking at their portfolios down 10% from the beginning of the year. And that's not a crisis. Um, and so they're just trying to figure out what equities do we keep our on and what um, I see that at most, least in right? fintech, there's a yeah. number of um, yeah. M&As which are which are distress driven, like you know uh, models that didn't work and then and yeah. then didn't work even worse during the crisis and um, you know and then there's been some buying and selling. Do, do, are there um, are there value buys in, in this environment for you? Like uh, are there things that you look at because they're cheaper now? And when I was a youngster here in the valley, one of the the grand um old men founders of venture capital he said bill look um yeah there's no such thing as a bargain in venture capital Um, you you know you you get what you pay for you can't you cannot go bargain hunting in venture capital he also he also his other phrase to me was don't worry about hitting every pitch there will always be there will always be another good pitch. So a very baseball metaphor. Who is, who is so this person? His name his name is Reed Dennis. Reed Dennis was the fa- was the founder of institutional. That's useful because yeah. in a way it's like the art market. You know, you don't go into bargain with an artist. Uh, you you decide what the valuation should be and and. Wow. and you know, just going back to your original point about Garage Ventures, when you started it, uh, yeah. you said you had an original intention, which was to be different from the rest, uh, from right. other VCs. Right. How's that playing out? Like, uh, are you as different <laughs> as you want it to be? You know, we've reinvented Garage, you know, every few years, whether we needed to or not. What had happened was that the, all the guys on Sand Hill Road had raised these bigger funds because all this new money was coming into venture capital. The godfather of Garage uh, was a guy named Craig Johnson. Craig Johnson was the founder of Venture Law Group. He had spun 24 lawyers out of Wilson Sonsini and took them and Yahoo 
um, from Wilson Sonsini and set up this radical new law firm called Venture Law Group. So by the late 90s, Craig was getting frustrated because he would come across these two graduate students out of Stanford who had this great idea. And he would call up his buddies on Sand Hill Road and say, hey, let's put a couple hundred thousand into this company and let's see if they can make something. And they would say, Craig, Craig, 200,000. We can't write a check for 200,000. That's a crazy, you know, we got to write a check for 2 million. Craig said, well, that, that's cool. There's this incredible opportunity to create a venture firm that actually bridges between the angels and Sand Hill Road. And so our big idea was to fill that gap. And one of our original mantras was, we are venture capital, filling the gap between angels and VCs. At that point, venture capital, you know, real VCs, you know, real VCs didn't do C. We were overwhelmed with demand. And so we did this engine, this process, to to um, to bring startup companies into we would put in like twenty five thousand dollars or fifty thousand dollars and we would we would run them through a curriculum um, basically we created the garage curriculum and you know depending upon where how how experienced you were as an entrepreneur and where you were in terms of product launch and all that stuff, we would sort of run you through this curriculum. And when you were ready, we would then introduce you to our friends on Sand Hill Road. So our, our, original, our original investors were Sequoia and Mayfield and Draper Fisher Jurvetson and Silicon Valley Bank and Highland Capital. They were the ones who actually originally funded us to basically be the farm team for Sand Hill Road. And, um, and so we invested in like 130 companies in the first three years. And Pardon? that's become so complex now, isn't it? No, well, it, I mean, that had happened. That's, that was the phenomenon of the, you know, prior to it was always the case that, you know, 70 to 80% of exits were M&A. Um, and if you were lucky, you could get an IPO, but it was always M&A was the dominant exit. And then during the bubble, you had this unbelievable flip where you had this explosion of IPOs out of, you know, out of Silicon Valley. But then, you know, that, it was all hot air and, you know, that bubble burst and we thought we learned our lesson at that point. But, and we sort of did. And so, yeah. you know, fast forward to this last cycle as companies became, you know, more and more successful, what happened was they didn't have to go public. And in fact, they didn't want to go public. And you had all of this late stage money that came into the market. You know, the PE guys, the Fidelities and the Goldmans and the T-Row price. Bigger than the market. And so, and then you had the, this horrible phenomenon where the entrepreneurs could cash out through these late stage guys. They say just, yeah. And, and so like the guys from Groupon, so Goldman Sachs raised $900 million in a pre-IPO for Groupon, 450 million of the 900 million went to the founders. It was, it was obscene. It was, I mean, it was, it was crazy. And then 
all of those Goldman Sachs investors will run underwater after the IPO. You know, the company went public and then it went down. You've just introduced uh, yeah. the, uh, one element that I wasn't looking at, at, at the founders themselves, you know, yeah. uh, at which point they reward themselves and stuff like that. Actually, right. this has been an amazing conversation. Just one more part to it, which is, okay. um, uh, which is garage, garage Ventures globally, um, you yeah. know, uh, is Silicon Valley where you want to be? Is, is, is that where the good deals are still? Uh, no. You know, are there, are there much, uh, you know, baseline deals which, which you can scale uh, other parts of the world? How do you see international yeah. from where yeah. you are? Yeah. Well, two quick points. The first point is, you know, I mean, because the world is now a much more open uh, opportunity for innovation and entrepreneurship, um, you know, that's a key part of why I am now also at Pegasus Tech Ventures, which is a global venture firm. So, you know, Pegasus gives me that much, much greater global reach than I can with, with, just, with just Garage. There is a lot more opportunity globally than there was, you know, 10 years ago. The second point is the really interesting thing about this, this crisis is now, you know, I get up in the morning and I'm on a Zoom call with Israel. And then during the day, I may be talking to New York and Boston and Minneapolis and Southern California and San Francisco. And in the evenings, I'm on a Zoom call to Taiwan or Japan or Singapore, for that matter, right? Um, and what's really interesting is the experience, whether I'm talking to Israel or Singapore or San Francisco, it's the same experience. Same issues. Yeah. This crisis has, has flattened the access of entrepreneurs to investors and of investors to entrepreneurs globally. And so, you know, I get a pitch from Germany for this AI you know, manufacturing technology, and they could be in San Francisco, they happen to be in Germany. Um, and that night, you know, we hook up with a company in Taiwan and say, hey, you got to look at this technology. It's extraordinary technology. And, you know, in, in the olden days, we wouldn't have even thought about doing that. And maybe we would have had a, a, a conference call, but now the standard is to actually look at the other people and to have, you know, thanks to the video conferencing, which has gotten, yeah. you know, much better, still not perfect. Right. But <laughs> yeah, um, it works. Yeah. Right. right. It's a very different, it's a very different experience. And I, I think this crisis is going to accelerate. Um, I think it's going to accelerate the globalization of venture capital. So, you know, we had some globalization and that sort of stalled out. And what you're saying, what you're saying is that venture yeah. capital is not as global as, as it is as yet. Thank you very much, Bill. Thank you for listening to Radio Finance. For more content, visit the Asian Banker website and follow us on social media.